Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant Crispin, and this is episode 20. Anyone who's involved with the world of adoption knows that adoption has lifelong implications for everyone involved. Birth parents, adoptive parents, and of course, the people who are adopted from one family into another. Until very recently, adoption was almost always shrouded in secrecy. The link between the birth parent and the adopted person was held in file boxes on the shelves of adoption agencies, paperwork that connected the adopted child to the parent or parents they came from. In order to access that information, adoptees and birth parents had to pay money, had to know where to start, and had to rely on the cooperation of whomever received their request for information. Nowadays, we recognize the importance of transparency in adoption and the benefits of a child knowing about their birth family and even having relationships with them. Most adoptions today are open, with contact between birth and adoptive families. But that leaves thousands of adopted adults with gaping holes in their life stories. In response to this, in 2018, Amara, a foster care and adoption agency in Seattle, launched Project Search and Reunion, a groundbreaking initiative that aims to audit 3,100 of their own adoption files between the years of 1950 and 2000 to ensure that adoptees and birth families receive the information and support they requested, especially in regard to searching. In March, just before the world shut down and we all went into quarantine, I had a chance to hear a presentation about this important work. And in today's episode of the podcast, I'm speaking with Rena Konomis, a Washington State Court-Appointed Confidential Intermediary and Project Director of Project Search and Reunion. In this episode, Rena explains the goal of the project and why it matters for everyone involved with the world of adoption. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me today. And I don't, I don't want to take too much of your time because I know that it's, you know, nuts and I've got five kids that are like um, needing attention, but I am really, really excited about the project that you're part of. And I want to shine some attention on it and let people know that this is even happening because this is pretty pretty big deal for especially adoptees and um, perhaps mothers and fathers who have placed children for adoption long ago, families um, and that sort of thing. So can you tell me a little bit about Project Search and Reunion, this this project that you're part of? Sure. So uh, Project Search and Reunion, it's really an unprecedented initiative that Amara has taken on. It started about two years ago when um, Angela Tucker, the director of post-adoption, started realizing that we had all these files. Amara kept, has kept every file since the, I've seen them as far back as 1916. Um, and they've been kept well. They're in pristine shape considering, you know, you can imagine the archival paper, that onion skin paper and everything. And everything is there. And she started looking into what was actually in the files. And some files had items that were never processed back to the person that they were intended for. Um, Lots and lots, so many of them had 
requests from information that just were never provided. And then we started looking back at the different decades of, you know, kind of historical practices of, um, you know, the unwed mother's homes, the Florence Crintonton homes, um, the different reasons for people adopting and the wanting to match adoptive families with uh, prospective babies, um, and then just the different changes in laws of what was available for access for adoptees. And we had it all sitting there in these drawers, like thousands and thousands and thousands of files. And uh, we started thinking about how can we create a process that would allow us to make amends for practices that were never set up for the adoptee. Um, it was always very confidential, uh, very controlled, and um, there was just this secrecy around it and lack of knowledge of how to access the information. Um, so with Project Search and Reunion, we're trying to kind of complete the story for adoptees. Um, right now, what we do is we review the files and we try to reach out to the people who have reached, who have contacted us in the past. And some, and a lot of times it's decades ago and they still want to know their story. They want to know what were the circumstances around their adoptions. Um, you know, it's not just birth parents and adoptees, the adoptive families desperately want to know those stories as well so that they can have a fuller picture of their children. Um, there used to be a time when you had to pay a lot of money to get access to this information. And even still today, there's lots of agencies that can't afford staff to do this, so they have to charge some money. Um, this project right now is all run by volunteers, so the financial burden is not that heavy on our agency. And so it allows us to offer these kind of reviews for the adoptees without any fees. Um, and we just, we have, we believe that, you know, pretty much any agency can do this. And so we're trying to kind of work out our procedures and we're, of course, making sure that we're maintaining all of the requirements by law. Um, and we're, you know, there's quandaries, there's definitely ethical quandaries that we run into. Um, so we have to hold off on all the reviews and understand best how we kind of balance best practices and laws and rights to the adoptees. So it's just this wonderful project to work on and see it through fruition. Wow. I think a lot of people listening may not be real familiar with the fact that there have been some real changes or there are, there's movement of change over the last maybe 20, 30 years of going from adoption being this really kind of secretive, um, hush, hush, we don't really talk about it. And, and this concept that for a long time, people believed that if you took a baby from their, their birth mother and placed them into the loving arms of an adoptive family and just sort of went about life as usual, that it would be as if they had been born to them. And that that isn't true. It just simply isn't true for a lot of reasons. And we know more now, I think, about attachment and, and psychology and just the, the development of babies and all the things that babies are aware of even and trauma and all of those things. And now um, 
we're recognizing that, that a lot of the things that were believed about adoption aren't true, but also we're recognizing the injustices that were done to so many, especially unwed mothers who with support and lifting the shame of being an unwed mother, um, they would have loved to have kept and raised their children. Um, the decision to give up their child for adoption a lot of times was due to societal pressure, parents forcing them to do that and all of these things. So when we really think about what drove adoption in the first place, there's so much sadness and sorrow. And, and what I'm hearing from this project is that you're going back and saying, we want to do something to address that and try to begin to make it right. We can never undo what was done, but we want to find a way to do what can be done to um, at least give all of the people involved something of their story. Am I right? I mean, am I hearing correctly what drives this project? I think so, yeah. I mean, there's so much in that, right? I mean, adoption has been occurring for, I'm sure, forever and will likely continue in some form. It's just how we treat everybody. I mean, it's such a tension in the same moment, in the exact same moment a family is created, another family is destroyed. Um, so you're always in that same place. And I think, and I'm an adopted mom. Um, my son came to us as a newborn and, you know, he has to hold that love for us and loss for his birth family at the same moment and try and figure out how to balance that. And it's, it's almost an impossible thing to do, but it's always in the same moment. It never goes away. Right. Like you Mm -hmm. always have one with the other. Um, I mean, certainly in, you know, the 50s, we can see, you know, it was just expected. If you weren't married, you went into a home and you gave birth to a baby and then you went back into your regular life. There was no questions um, asked of either party. The adoptive family were never really questioned about, you know, how that happened or if they were, it was very quiet. Mm-hmm. And then the birth mother would just reenter her life in some form Again, no questions were asked. Um, so we, I mean, and we see that best practices are moving forward and obviously much quicker than any of the laws are. And we're hoping to show that we can change some of the access laws. Um, there's, I think, 10 states that allow adoptees to have access to their original birth certificates um, without any kind of kind of stepping stones as far as as getting permission. They can just access it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have, Washington has um, limited access, but we still are able to get adoptees their original birth certificate. And the reason an original birth certificate is so important is it will have the full name of your birth mother on it. And if you want to try and do a search for any of your birth family, that's really a great place to start. And so that's one of the laws that, you know, we hope over time that we can help um, amend in uh, in Washington. And Mm -hmm. we see, you know, New York just changed their laws in January. So we Mm -hmm. know it's happening today. Mm -hmm. And so we want to do that. So, yeah, so we're, Washington's a compromised state. So birth family, birth mothers can still deny access to it. But in the most, um, for the most part, they don't. 
And then an adoptee can just go to the Department of Health and pay $20 and get a copy of it. And uh, so that would just be wonderful. Right. To have that for for Washington, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, just in case people listening don't know this, when you adopt a child, they are issued a new birth certificate and the adoptive parents' names are placed on that birth certificate. So they will have a birth certificate that has the adoptive parents' names and then everything else, the hospital they were born at, the time of being, you know, all of the information about that is on a normal birth certificate. It's just that the new adoptive parents' names are there instead. And if they change the child's name at adoption, which most people do, the, a new name is given. So, um, which is, you know, I, I remember when we first adopted our first two children, I was so shocked by that. I was like, we adopted them when they were two and seven years old. And it felt so weird that my name was on their birth certificate when I didn't even meet them until years later. I had later. a similar, absolutely, we had a similar, and we were given our son's birth certificate, and I actually pushed it back to the lawyer saying, oh my gosh, yeah. this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, 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 this is what happens when the adoption is finalized. Mm-hmm. And I, the first thought I had was, how am I going to explain that to him? Right. This makes no sense. And it, the term that you used earlier about as if born to you, in our legal documents, it says, we're responsible for him as if born to us. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is a, a legal term that is used in some state documents. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, certainly we feel that to our core as mm-hmm. his parents, mm-hmm. um, but we also understand that openness in his adoption is what will ultimately, hopefully, provide him with success in managing the balance between us and his birth family. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting tension, isn't it? Because when you adopt a child, you are taking them in and on as if, I mean, you're committing to them as if they had been born to you in the sense of they have every legal right that a son or daughter has. They have every, you know, the idea is that you are, that you are going to treat them in every good way as if they were born to you. But I think what we have to recognize is that there will always be this reality for an adoptive family that they weren't born to you and that will live in them. And if we don't have, have ways to help our kids process that and live with it and grow into the knowledge of that as they grow in, you know, wisdom and maturity and all of that, then there's just this vacant place in them and pretending it isn't there, isn't going to make it go away. No. And it is jarring. I mean, you know, I go days, weeks, maybe months and forget that he's my adopted son Mm -hmm. and that he's my son. And then all of a sudden something will jar me back into it. Mm -hmm. And it's best to know that we're eight, like we talk about it all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is such, uh, it's, it lessens that jar for him as well, right? Like as much as it impacts me, it must happen to him every day. Mm -hmm. Um, or, um, you know, I don't know, but just to be able to talk about it and know that there is a comfort in that, I think, um, at least, yeah, the openness and the support of knowing that you can share the same minute for both families. Yes, yes, yeah. 
Um, getting back to Project Search and Reunion, so mm-hmm. obviously you have an interest in the adoption world as an adoptive mother. Um, how did you get linked up with this project and what has it looked like for you to be part of this project? I originally started working with Amara on a couple of different projects that Angela was initiating for uh, her post-adoption work. And I had been on um, some panels with her and also just kind of supporting different ideas and um, projects that she was working on. And this one came up as I saw it going through the pilot stages of it and just the excitement of it and how quickly the responses were from people who heard about it. And so when she got the okay to make this a formal position at Amara, I jumped at the chance to work on it and was lucky enough to be hired to do it. I've got a lot of um, project management background, Mm -hmm. so she really wanted to take it from that kind of initial pilot uh, program of, you know, is this something that we can do to something that was more structured and moving every week through the files. And so I'm hoping that's where my strengths have been able to make this more successful. Mm-hmm. What are uh, some of the ethical quandaries that you all have run into? And I know you said, uh, when I heard you talk about this several weeks ago now, you mentioned having a, a panel who kind of manage all the ethical issues that are arising. Um, what are some of those issues that are coming up and how are they being handled? So I'll tell you about the how. Um, We have a formalized process where the volunteers do their audits, their reviews of the file, and we collect a lot of data from each file so that we can better understand what's available to us. And right now we're focused on making amends that are um, based on search requests, non-identifying information letters where adoptees are allowed to ask an agency for that kind of information, and also just trying to get correspondences that have come through the agency to the person that they were intended for in the first place. Um, So that's our current focus, but we know there's a lot more data that's in the files that can give us different avenues of contact for adoptees. So that's the first step that the volunteers do for us. And then when they see something that is missing, so um, a search request that has gone unanswered or a non-identifying information letter that doesn't have all the information that could have been provided or cards, letters, we found jewelry um, that needs to be sent out to the adoptee, then that requires the follow-up. And then that's where we have an ethical advisory committee That is, um, it's actually people from, I think we have people from eight different states throughout the U.S. Um, Many of them are part of the adoption triad. We've got adoptees, adoptive parents, and birth parents. Um, Everyone on the committee has some kind of um, adoption competency or search kind of genealogy background. Um, we've got people who have written about adoption. We've got a lawyer. Uh, we have several social workers. Um, we definitely have a confidential intermediary, uh, two of them actually, if you count me, um, and a genealogist, so that we're able to test 
our follow-ups and make sure that what we're doing is ethical and is meeting what the law expects of the agency as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So we take a look at, you know, we want to make sure that we're offering, um, you know, that idea of that there are actions of everyone in the file. Mm -hmm. So while we might be providing the right answer for perhaps a birth mother, it might not be the best ethical reaction for the adoptee. So we weigh everyone within a file. Um, and the adoption file, the way Amara has them set up, is based on the adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. So if the adoptive parent have, uh, have many children that they've adopted, then all those children, all those adoptees are in that one file. So we're able to balance all of them within the request. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's, it's a definite balance. I mean, we look at values and principles. We look at different obligations and commitments that the agency maybe didn't complete or, you know, best practices 30 years ago are so much different than today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, so it's really kind of trying to establish that road of, you know, where are the guards that we have to follow through and still make sure that we're providing adoptees access to the information that they're looking for in the first place. Mm-hmm. It seems like so we, some... So oh, we, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, so we meet um, monthly, and we look at different aspects of... And sometimes the files, we just we don't have an answer, and we let it sit for a while, and we, you know, we revisit it. Um, a, a, lot, a big question is, you know, who's file is it? Is it the agency's file? Is it the adoptive parent's file? Is it the adoptee's file? Um, So there's a lot of questions about, you know, whose file does this belong to? Mm -hmm. And we we still don't have an answer for that. I mean, there's lots of feelings around it and opinions, but um, it's just a hard question to, uh, to answer. But we do have a lot of things that we talk about. So we look at, um, you know, each of the individual rights that we talked about, I mentioned um, the obligations, you know, did we make promises? Um, I think in the, you know, 50s and 60s, there were a lot of social workers, caseworkers making promises to birth parents, birth mothers that, you know, nobody will ever find out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what kind of promise is that? And, you know, even with today's laws, you can't keep that promise mm-hmm. because adoptees can access some of their information that could ultimately, um, you know, be part of a successful search. Yeah. Yeah. As an adoptive parent, I have evolved quite a lot. And um, when I first went into being a parent, it was through foster care and we were supportive of reunification, but when it didn't happen, we were thrilled to be able to adopt our children. And we, the, the vision that I had going into all of that was very much old school adoptive stuff where there was this sense of wanting to somehow protect the children from the sadness and the dark parts of their history. And Over time, I have really learned so much, mostly from listening to the voices of adult adoptees and uh, families that have children who were placed out for adoption. 
And I've realized that, that that isn't, I mean, for me and, and for my family, that isn't the, the vision that we have now. We've kind of evolved into this place where we recognize that when you in, enter into the world of adoption, whatever your part is, that there has to be this sense that we are all in this together. And it's, you know, when you're talking about who owns the file, that really brings up this issue of we're all in this together and we have to have one, um, we have to have one another in mind. So like, you know, as an adoptive parent, I can't just approach things according to what is most comfortable for me. You know, I can't let any fears that I have be the driving factor of, you know, of my kids and even just the sense of them being my kids. You know, there's this ownership language that often appears in adoption that is so unhelpful. And so, you know, coming to the place where you recognize no one owns the kids and we're all part of it. And you know, she's their mom and I'm their mom. And there has to be language for both. We have to have a way of talking about all of the above, you know, and, and I think it's just this, this whole attitude toward it, that everyone has to sort of have this, this openness toward one another and recognizing it is hard and it is messy and it's not clean cut. And, you know, the kids, the kids will feel loyalty conflicts and, you know, all of this. And so finding language and finding a way to, to do this because, because adoption exists for a reason. And, you know, there will always, I think, be the need for it. I don't think the, the goal is a realistic goal would be to try to eradicate the need for adoption altogether. But, um, but I think recognizing the, the need for a different attitude, and this is really bringing that to light. So, um, I would imagine that there are some cases that come across your desk that are very clean, clear cut, like uh, a birth mother, sending information for the child, the child requesting information. I would imagine that's an easy case to solve where you don't have to, you know, wonder if you're betraying one side in order to serve the other. But I listened to a podcast called Adoptees On, and it's been very enlightening listening to a lot of adult adoptees experiences with reunification. And a lot of them talk about reconnecting with birth mothers who reject them again, because they don't they, for whatever reason, are unable to enter into relationship with them a second time. Um, do you come across those kinds of, of things where maybe an adoptee is searching for information, but an adopt, a, a birth parent is not in favor of, of that connection? Um, absolutely. I mean, I, we do have some standard audit responses now. So if an adoptee has reached out at any point and asked for some of their non-identifying information and they never received it. We just automatically try to find them and let them know that it's, it's available now and it's free mm-hmm. uh, for us to do it. And we tell mm-hmm. them about the project and how it is that, you know, from 1970 to 2020 that we're, re- we're reaching out. And um, what we're finding is, you know, even if they did have a successful reunification, they still want to know, like, what's in there? Tell mm-hmm. me about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're able to provide that information. Or if they haven't um, done a search, they still want to know, you know, what were the circumstances around what was happening so we can do that. Um, 
Can you restate your question? Sorry, I want to stay focused. Oh, that's okay. Well, yeah, I was just really wondering if you have, for for example, I'll give you one example that I heard of in this um, podcast that I listened to where it's all voices of adult adoptees being interviewed. And one person was talking about finding their birth parents and realizing who they were. Okay. And then, um, the birth parent had never told anybody, including their spouse that they had given a child up for adoption. So in order to reunify this birth parent would have to, you know, tell their spouse and their children, by the way, I had a child, I gave that child up. And so that parent wanted to preserve the, you know, I'm sure they wanted to also, know this child, but they were so afraid of unraveling the life they had built by bringing this in and all the shame and everything with it, that they rejected the reunification. And that really hurts, you know, adoptees a second time. It, it's this like re-traumatization of, of, of a second rejection or feeling of being rejected by their birth parents. So I just wondered if, if you have birth parents who are saying, you know, I don't want you know, I've put this behind me, even though we know it's never truly behind you, you carry it for the rest of your life. But I've put this behind me and I don't, I don't want contact. I don't want to reunify. Right. And I mean, for both adoptees and birth parents, I mean, part of being, I'm a a confidential intermediary for Washington and I'm, I'm permitted to do searches and reach out to birth parents, but I have to do it discreetly knowing exactly what you said. They may have never told anybody, um, especially if they were, you know, 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s. There was was a lot of weight placed on them not to tell anybody. Um, So it was something that they were just expected to do was just not talk about it ever. Um, So we know a lot of times maybe that first contact is not going to be that welcoming because it is a shock um, when you're told, you know, your case is closed, it's all gone, you'll, you know, you can just move on with your life. And we see those kinds of notes in, ca- in the case notes where the birth mother is told, you know, like, just forget about it. It'll be better for you and everybody if you just forget about it. Um, so when all of a sudden you get a phone call or a letter saying, hey, um, you know, are you this person um, that sometimes the first answer is, you know, I don't want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. But we do have ways to, you know, let that take time um, and give people that kind of self-determination of, you know, here's a letter, maybe a handwritten letter from your birth child or birth parents. Um, you know, here's some contact information should you choose over time. And you just, you, you manage the expectations for everybody mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, it, you know, there are some cases where it's an emphatic, like absolutely no, we have um, do not consent forms that legally are binding and we're not allowed to contact people if we find those. And those are, you know, for those are done. Um, we don't see very many of them actually. So, mm-hmm. you know, that does tell us that people want to be possibly found. Yeah. So there is ways that, you know, maybe the first no is that kind of defense reaction, but you just keep that door open a little bit by doing, you know, that self-determination, you know, offering letters, 
offering different contact ideas, not putting a timeline on it is, Mm -hmm. you know, important for people. Yeah, they need time. Well, Mm -hmm. I would love to hear some of the happy endings or some of the stories that you found or some of your favorite ones. Again, recognizing that the, the ocean of sadness and loss in adoption is pretty hard to overestimate. I mean, it's, it, the waves come for the kids and for, you know, birth parents, I'm sure for the rest of their lives. So there's no way to eradicate any of that. What's done is done. But what are some of the, the joyful stories that you have experienced? I guess that, I mean, yeah, happy is hard to uh, quantify in this way, I suppose. But I mean, we have had, um, I mean, we found a beautiful ring in one of the files and that was, um, the adoptee was actually, uh, interviewed on King five a while ago. Um, but she was adopted in the fifties and, um, her birth mother placed a ring in her file asking the, um, caseworker to pass it along to her parents to give to her on her 16th birthday. And as was the best practice in the 50s, um, that was just something that you you just didn't do. There was no thought of openness or anything in connection to the birth parents. Um, so the caseworker took the ring and then said in her notes, you know, I just can't put that burden on the adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ring sat in our files from the mid-50s. Until we uh, until we found it a couple of years ago, so we were able to successfully find her and um, talk to her again through self determination. She shared with us her adoption story, and we provided her with this great non identifying information letter. And those letters are um, you know there's basic information, first names, um, you know, hobbies and interests physical attributes, education of the birth parents and their parents and any aunts and uncles, um, and then some basic information about the circumstances around their adoption at the time of their birth. And uh, the one thing that was wonderful for this adoptee was her birth mother absolutely adored horses. And so had she for it when she was a young girl. And her family owned a farm, and they could never figure out why she always wanted a horse. And she was saying that, you know, when I was 14, they finally let me have a horse. Um, And uh, they were just shocked that she was so excited about it. And here she finds out her birth mom absolutely loved horses, as she had. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was lovely to see her, you know, we talk about in that moment of balancing both your adoptive parents and your birth mother like her first thought was dual. Like she was thrilled that as a child, she had a connection with her birth mother's, you know, love of horses. And at that same moment, she said, you know, gosh, I wish I could tell my mom and dad why I liked horses so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she just, you know, it sat there in that moment at the exact same time for both of her parents. And, um, so we gave her the ring and, um, she was just delighted. She said, you know, it, it just kind of, her a quote she gave us is, you know, it was a gentle elation that colors the rest of my life a little bit brighter. Mm. Um, 
So it was mm-hmm. just lovely to see. So that was, but you know, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily make everything go away. It just makes it a little bit brighter for her. You know, she has yeah. something that connects her, and that's a, that's a pretty big find. It's not anything typical whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, um, you know, we are able to tell people that piece because adopted parents uh, certainly years ago, um, you know, they get handed the child and get no background information or very, very limited mm-hmm. background information. So they don't have anything to tell their kids, you know, you know, the six months or three months or whatever it was before we had you is a black hole. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we, you know, that's the part that we're trying to make amends for, um, so it doesn't necessarily always kick off a, a search requirement by the adoptee, but it definitely provides them with a light into that place that nobody knew anything about. Um, but we have all that information in the file for them. Wow. What an incredible work you're doing. And like you said, it is not happening in very many places. Do you know of other places in the country that are trying to do some of the same this same uh, type of work? We're not aware of any other agency that's doing it as a kind of a procedural activity within the work that they do. I mean, certainly adoptees have different levels of rights in different states for access to some of the information, and agencies have to comply for that. But one of the biggest parts of our project is that we're realizing now is just the awareness mm-hmm. of letting adoptees and their families know you have a right to go and ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and just having that awareness out there and getting a better understanding of what they can expect rather than thinking, you know, my file's closed it is closed, but there's still access to some of that information that we can get out to people. And, um, you know, I, I copy medical papers. I, you know, they return pictures, uh, certainly notes that were written in there from years, you know, decades ago. And adoptees need to know and the families that are around them that love them need to know that they can go and ask for that kind of information. So we're raising awareness. We're also challenging, I think, adoptive parents to take a more advocate-type role in um, terms of getting this information for their children. If you're an adoptive parent, are you allowed to request any of this, or is it just the adoptee, and do they have to wait till they're adults to request these things? Uh, Some of the information, the adoptee has to be an adult to request. Mm -hmm. Um, Other information, the adoptive parents can... um, request on behalf of them before they turn 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this is important. And I hope folks who are listening are just hearing that um, the way things have been done for a long time and the laws that reflect the way things have been done for a long time need to change. And this is just some important information to know and to take some action on on behalf of, of everyone involved to just do things better and do things with more uh, with more justice and to do our kids the service of them knowing as much of their story as is possible. And I think it's wonderful what you're doing. You mentioned several times being a confidential intermediary, and I wonder uh, how many of my listeners might not know what that is. Could you describe a little bit what a confidential intermediary is and does? 
I can. So confidential intermediaries uh, were worked into adoption laws in the mid-70s in Washington, and they're used throughout many of the states. And it is someone who works on behalf of either an adoptee or a birth parent who want to search for them. For them. And it allows us access to court documents um, to get basically last names of people and addresses to go and contact them. So we're allowed to discreetly contact the person that is being searched on behalf of um, in an adoption situation. So we're, we're able to do that by law. Um, and in, in fact, um, in Washington, it's required that you use a confidential intermediary to access those documents. Um, but that was in the 70s, and there were hundreds of confidential intermediaries at that time. Um, and I believe today there's probably less than 100 total. Um, and that's because people now just go ahead onto social media and start searching for people. Yeah. And that's, that's harsh as mm-hmm. well because then you don't have that – well, you can't – you can't know for sure you're searching for the right person. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also don't know if that person is going to, like you said, reject you right away mm-hmm. um, because it's just like handed to them like, hey, you need to talk to me. And some you know, people feel defensive um, or scared. Um, so this, the confidential intermediary just helps in that way. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's mainly how they're used. I do think if we could get uh, adoptees accessing their original birth certificates without any kind of um, requirements. It would make it easier for them to contact and just provide them with the best ways to make contact, I think would help mm-hmm. um, for sure. Yeah. 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 When I first uh, heard you and Angela give your presentation about Project Search and Reunion, I wondered, one of the questions that came up in my mind when I heard about your work as a CI was um, if it was the same thing as a search angel. And I did some research since then, and I've learned it's not the same thing as a search angel. Those are two different um, t- different things. And um, so people listening might wonder, is it the same thing as a search angel? It isn't. Um, search angels are volunteers who do this of their own volition who don't have the the connections that a um, confidential intermediary has and don't don't have the same legal rights to gain access to information. So search angels are more people just using their own social media and their own DNA tests and things to try to to try to find. um, And we do all of that, too. Yeah, Yeah, we do all of that, too. I, I mean, I did a recent um, review for an adoptee. He, um, I believe, in his 40s. And he, um, he had done some searches on his own and made contact through some genealogy websites and had who he believed to be his birth family. And um, a cousin said, oh, yeah, you know, you're definitely the one that we couldn't find and this is the name of your birth mom. And uh, for years, for a few years that, you know, he, that's what he was told over and over again. And his adoptive parents were like, yeah, sounds, you know, sounds right. You know, that's, this is, you know, that's your birth, that must be your birth mother's name. And um, I think through some awareness work that we had done, he contacted us and said, you know, 
um, can you provide me with some non-identifying information? I want to confirm some, you know, some of my family background. I want to know a little bit more about my birth father. So I did the review and um, he had told me his birth mother's name. And when I went into the file, I quickly realized that was not her name. Hmm. Um, so the assumptions that people had made were incorrect. Wow. And so it was um, like when I talked to him about it, like he, all he could do is plus the birth mother he was told was his had passed away a couple of years, many years ago, like five or six years ago. Um, and I had to tell him like, that wasn't her name. That's, that's somebody different. And so he, all he could do was just keep repeating the name that I gave him. And, you know, even for myself, I started realizing, you know, it's not the name that he had in his mind for his mom. And it also meant that she might not have, might not be gone. Like she, right. this birth mother might still be alive. So for a right. very, you know, for the last, you know, however many years, five or six years, he had a story in his head that he, that everyone was like, yeah, it sounds right. Um, but it wasn't until he realized, you know, I know I can go find out some information and we can help you. So he, you know, I'm working with him still, but it, you know, it, it's tricky when you just use social media yeah. because people want <clears throat> to help, but yep. not, you know, sometimes it's not the most accurate um, and safe, right? Like mm -hmm. you've got to sort of balance all of that information. So mm -hmm. just having adoptees know that they can go find some more concrete information. Um, so at least that so kind of balances the information they're finding in social media against what was actually in their file, I think is a great way to do it. Right, right. Wow. And I think this also raises the fact that adoptees are very vulnerable when it comes to finding information. They, they are so hungry to know something of their story that um, they might believe something without having really gotten the hard data, you know, to confirm it. And um, so this just shows that it's good to have somebody who's involved, who isn't a party to the case, isn't emotionally invested, at least in the sense of wanting this to be the right one, you know, and able to really make, make an accurate connection. Uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Adoptees, adult adoptees are just told to believe what it, what has been their story all along without question. Um, so, you know, it makes sense that when they find any information, they just believe that that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and that's just not fair for anyone to have that be their story if they don't have all of it. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you shedding some light on this project. And I encourage anyone listening uh, to take some action steps next. Maybe contact your agency. Um, see if they're doing anything to help you know, take these files that are surely in their, in their storerooms. Also, you, you all, you talked about there just being boxes and boxes and boxes. I mean, decades of paperwork for all of the children who were adopted through these, through this agency, through Amara. But for every Amara, there's, there's hundreds of them across the country, uh, maybe even thousands. I don't know how many adoption agencies there are in the country, but um, this, this could be happening in a lot of other places. And, 
and helping to write the stories or finish the stories for a lot of people who have a lot of open questions. Absolutely. And we're happy to help agencies or adoptees and those who love them figure out how to make this work. Wonderful. Where can people go to find out more information about this and contact you if they wanted to reach out? Uh, Definitely our website has the information along with my contact information is all there. Okay. So that's Amara Puts Kids First dot org, is it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay. that's it. Yeah, it's not it's a mouthful. <laughs> All right, org, and you can search Project Search and Reunion to follow up. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time and for all of the good work you're doing on behalf of people in the adoption community. Yeah, absolutely, Christy. You've been listening to my conversation with Rena Konomis, Project Director of Project Search and Reunion. If you want to learn more about this wonderful initiative, visit amaraputskidsfirst.org. The link is in the show notes of this episode. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you access your favorite podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And if you are enjoying this resource, please consider becoming a patron of A Fostered Life on Patreon. To learn more about how to pledge as little as $1 a month to support this podcast, as well as the YouTube channel and blog, please go to patreon.com slash a fostered life. For more information and resources for foster parents, please visit afosteredlife.com, where you'll find blog posts, recommended reading, YouTube videos, and social media links, all designed to help foster parents feel more equipped for their foster care journey. It's my prayer that no foster parent ever feels like they're going at it alone. If you're a foster parent who feels like you're out there on your own, consider joining the Flourishing Foster Parent, a community designed to encourage, equip, and connect foster parents. You can find info on the Flourishing Foster Parent at afosteredlife.com FFP. One last thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate A Fostered Life on iTunes. It would help me out so much. Thanks for listening and thanks for caring about foster care.